Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. We were just having some problems with our recording software, Lancaster. Just for some reason, the industry stand. I, I don't know. I guess it's fine. <laughs> Every time they update something, it just all crashes. And um, I don't, you know, like people, old people who are just like, they refuse to update their actual hardware. Yeah, and so they complain every time Apple like updates their iPhone, <laughs> and they're like, "Well, you have an iPhone 4. and so <laughs> that's how I feel. <laughs> but I know I hate this thing. Anyway, uh, we have a packed show today. I'm with Andy and Tammy as always. Um, not as always, but you know, as usual. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit. I promise the last thing we, we're not really talking about the Olympics, right? We're talking about something around the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> and then we're going to talk about this eviction moratorium. How are the two of you do, yeah. doing? Tammy, every time Good. we see you on Zoom, you have a different background. This <laughs> yeah. one, I would say, and this is like the most staged Zoom background, yeah. right? Like, it's like a great Zoom background. This is fancy. Yeah, my friend's bookshelf. I'm I itinerant. Yeah. It's a very nice, like, <laughs> light lime green, avocado green <laughs> color, if I may say so myself. Andy, as always, looks like he's uh, at a debate tournament. <laughs> yeah. Are those your old debate files? Accordion files behind you? They are repurposed debate expandos for uh, <laughs> for my dissertation. Oh, which so is, you had like six. Yeah. Which which ones were your like old Foucault files? Yeah, I don't you know. know. They're all Bio, super anachronistic. Biopower one through six. <laughs> debaters don't use these anymore. So this is really. Oh, it's because it's all digital now? Yeah. Oh, that's false. sad. No more red ones. It's yeah. all paperless now. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. Yeah. I can, you guys I call them expandos? Yeah. I don't even know what these are used for. Are these legal things? We yeah, bought we them at Staples. Red welds. Red welds. Well, well, those are like the actual red things. Yeah, but so like, are those, aren't they? They look no, they're just like brown. cardboard pieces of shit. Oh, well, the red welds are basically cardboard too. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Wow, I'm being sent back in time to my like uh, expanded, like, you know. Uh, 31 pocket expandos from Staples. <laughs> right. Executive, executive order, order counter politics <laughs> counter plan expandos. Anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> Tammy, can you back up a little bit um, from the microphone? Thank you so much. Um, all right. So the first thing that we want to talk about is this story that is coming out of the Olympics, and it's about a Korean archer. And, um, you know, it's gotten a lot of attention internationally, which I find to be kind of interesting. Um, but, you know, there is a Korean archer who's a woman who has won three uh, gold medals at this point. Korea is very good at archery, as we said before, you know, in our uh, sort of race science way that yeah, Koreans exactly. really like to practice things. <laughs> or biodeterminist sports analysis. Right. The evi- there's, a, there's epigenetic, epigenetic code for like, re- repeating, <laughs> for constantly repeating the same motion over and over and over and oh over and over again. Um, and so, yeah, Koreans, I, I don't know, like I was looking at the Korean betting line before the olympics for how many gold medals they would win and it was like six and a half and i was like this must all be archery you know and they basically baked in six gold medals for archery yeah and then they're just like well maybe they'll win one in another event you know who knows <laughs> <laughs> like uh the, i was watching the vault gymnastics vault say, finals yeah and like a korean uh korean woman came in third there um and she could have won but she kind of screwed up her second vault um her father apparently was a very famous korean male vaulter in i don't know 1988 or something like that i don't know 
anyway, I'm Wait, off topic. So how yeah. long have they have they always dominated archery and just women's archery? Is it, I didn't know about this before this. No, year. the men are pretty good too. Yeah, um, yeah. one it's of a the fairly events, new sport. Yeah, yeah. Oh right, because Gina Davis decades. was like the first American to compete in it, right? Like in 20 years ago. <laughs> Oh yeah, gosh, so I don't know. Is that true? Who's Christina Davis? No, Gina Davis, Gina the Davis. actress. Gina Davis participated in yeah. was in the Olympic was, archery team. She's an Olympian. She picked up archery in her thirties or something. So nuts. Wait, like, so you can pick up archery in your thirties and then become an Olympian? <laughs> Jay's uh, like, I gotta go. I didn't say that. <laughs> I think she's. I don't know. Maybe she's like a genius at archery. Yeah, there's she picked a, it up. There's That's a guy so I played disc golf with who um, also says that he does archery and he says the two are very similar where like the whole point of it is just walk around in the woods and drink beer and i was like really like i don't know you know like that's like if that's dangerous right to do archery while drunk yeah the other like a couple months ago i was i had had a couple too many on the disc golf course (laughs) and i tripped over a stump and i just gash my shin it still hasn't healed it's been oh like for, like it was down to the bone such oh an old so, man injury <laughs> <this call. laughs> that's horrible so i was like walking around the woods drunk is not the safest oh thing God. but if you add in arrows instead of you know just yeah. throwing frisbees around i don't know it seems i've never like heard a of disc idea. golf what is it there's a you try to hit a particular tree or what well that's the original version of it okay. but now they have these little baskets it's a wonderful activity. I mean, it's uh, it, you, it's over in two hours, you know, or an hour and a half. So it's shorter than real golf. They build it in like, you know, I, I don't know. It's in different places all around the countries, but generally it's like in a, in woods, you know, and that nobody's using. And so somebody huh. just builds disc golf course in the woods. So you're literally just walking through the woods with your friends. And, it's just frisbee uh, golf, yeah? Yeah, it's frisbee golf. Yeah, okay. but you use these smaller, harder discs yeah. that fly further but um oh. it's a lot of fun there's no pressure sounds you cool. know is nobody it, gets nobody's mad or aggressive on the course is know, it like supplanting just... like ultimate frisbee as the disc sport of the, <laughs> of the future uh it's gotten much more popular in the past couple of years which is surprising like so i used to go a lot when i lived in san francisco 10 years ago oh, and wow. i promise i'll only talk about this for a little bit and it was always empty <laughs> And my friends and I would just go to Golden Gate Park because they had this amazing course there. And it was always empty. Like, you would never have to wait. But during the pandemic, man, you know, everybody in San Francisco went out to the disc golf course. And so you would have to sometimes wait, like, 45 minutes to get on the first hole because they had, like, this socially distanced line. Wow. (laughs) And then by the first hole, everyone's already drunk, you know, and then it becomes like a total shit show for the next 18 because everyone on the course is drunk. But yeah, it's become much more popular. (laughs) Um, In fact, like Sports Center was like doing a segment on the disc golf finals, you know, Hmm. and some of the barstool dudes are now like pro disc golf. And so I I feel like it's like they have huge cultural pull you know <laughs> if you want to get it, like right. i feel like their audience will do anything that they say is cool and so right. like if a few of them say disc golf is cool they'll all start disc golfing anyway that's it that's the end of our disc golf this is not in the olympics yet it's not in the it should be in the olympics <laughs> next time Lord. i mean you know i will say this about the class politics of disc golf that it is mostly like uh you know like a rural uh middle class working class activity you know oh. hmm. yeah yeah, Tammy, you have to like it now. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there are no rich people playing disc golf, the you know. 
Oh my god! Except for like maybe my so, friends. So know? does the course is the the terrain kind of like a paintball terrain? Basically? No, no, no. Oh. It's much more. They don't cut down. They'll cut down a couple trees, you know, but that's about it. And, okay. Um, Just enough for you to them, fall over when you're drunk. Yeah, and then, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then there's uh, there's disc golf community. There's a lot of community around disc golf, and so there's a whole group of people who clean up the course uh volunteers oh, and wow. they maintain the course. it's great i don't know there's really nothing that i have to say oh. bad about it i mean i imagine you know it's pretty white but like you know, whatever <laughs> yeah. like it's fine it doesn't have to be there's nothing it doesn't have to be it. and also yes. honestly some of the best people i see out there are you know latino people um in san francisco they're just out there too i don't know now, not... do they bring their own discs? Is there like regulations? On yeah, you got to bring your own disc. Yeah. So could you so... have like a mega disc that's like <laughs> a mega disc? <laughs> no, like... it won't uh, fit in the basket. Some people bring up. I, I will. The other thing I'll say is like really it's a really... very male activity, yeah. as one can imagine. <laughs> but I will saying. say that uh, <laughs> that is also changing. Um, Ten years ago, like you know, if you saw a woman on the course, you'd be like, "What is going on?" You know. And now it's <laughs> now it's like. Uh, pretty regular that you see women on the course. Um, I don't know if that's just San Francisco mm. or not, but yeah, uh, I've. Uh, oh my god, how long is this going on? Okay, I'm going to give it 30 more seconds. <laughs> Everyone should play disc golf. It's a wonderful activity. It's a little, you know, get over the embarrassment of saying that you play disc golf. A disc is fifteen dollars. The courses are usually either five dollars or free. You know. Oh. And it's a wonderful time. You just like walk around the woods with your friends, drinking a couple of beers. Like, what could be better? All right. That sounds cool. Now, on to archery, a much more intense activity. Tammy, <laughs> what happened here? Like, you are you are expert on on these <laughs> issues. What happened? Definitely Ar- not on archery. On archery. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but on yeah, the issues been, surrounding it. It's been a really emotional week in art Korean archery land. Um, there is an archery star, as Jay mentioned, called Ansan. A-N-S-A-N, and um, she's won three gold medals now. Really incredible archer. Also, the whole heartbeat analysis thing, by the way, is, like, really amazing. It's weird. How, like, you know, they track, yeah, they track your, like, EKG or whatever. Uh, I don't know. Like, your heartbeat. They, like, have have the heartbeat monitor on the screen anyway um she has like she has ice in her veins right she's the coolest cucumber around yeah i'm like that i under pressure (laughs) under pressure your heart rate is 40 what pressure are you facing (laughs) when he's at his computer (laughs) (laughs) yeah when i have to type the when i have to type the 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 nut graph to an article i know i mean but you know various various athletic endeavors just I don't feel the pressure. It's, it's incredible. All, it's all the same. This is like <laughs> epigenetics, the it's Korean epigenetics. Korean, yeah. Me and Ansan have the same oh my God. epigenetic code. All right. I'm all right. Sorry so to, sorry. Okay, yeah. back to. So she's a really amazing athlete. She has very short hair, and um, she's basically been picked up as the latest victim of men's rights sort of blogger, bulletin boarder type people to be attacked as a misandrist feminist. Um, what's interesting about this is not that it's a unique incident, but it's really like part of a very long story of this kind of internet fueled attack on feminism or what is interpreted as feminism and which in Korea is 
equated with radical feminism and, and misandrism. And I'd love for us to talk about that because I think the reaction to the, these sorts of accusations of like, oh, you're a misandrous feminist is often, no, I'm not a feminist, you know? And so right. in some ways we're playing on the terrain yeah. of sort of incels or men's rights people. Um, but anyway, to make that, make a long story somewhat short, like in this kind of goes back about five to 10 years that there's been a lot of new feminist activism among young women in response largely to obviously the conditions of daily life in Korea, which are very patriarchal and difficult for women, but also the sort of internet fueled and smartphone fueled harassment, sexual violence, um, you know, re from revenge porn to hidden cameras called mulka that have been embedded in a lot of women's restrooms to job discrimination. So it's like this whole kind of thing. And in 2016, there was a bit of a turning point with a murder in uh, a Kangna, the Gangnam um, subway station. And um, in that sense, the movement that, that came up around that with women basically saying that could have been me, this is what it's like to be in Korea as a woman. It's, you know, fear for your physical safety, fear for your internet safety, um, you know, kind of spurred a sort of me too, avant la lettre, like a proto me too, or me too before the sort of Weinstein moment in the US. So anyway, um, I've- And there felt, was a, there was a recent yeah. moment um, also in, you know, a couple of years ago about uh, revenge porn being and different types of like hidden camera photos being shared on in these massive telegram groups, right? Yeah. So there was this telegram scandal called the N Room or Nth Room telegram scandal, which is basically a hidden channel with really unspeakable sexual brutality um, from child rape to other forms of sexual assault and violence that were perpetrated by quite a few men in an organized fashion. And then many, many men who were downloading this material. So, you know, it's, it, it's kind of hard to summarize this whole thing, but basically we can read the the victimization of Unsun in this kind of trajectory of a sort of lashing out against women that is both proactive and reactive to some of the feminist currents in the country. So what's actually happening to her? Because like, you know, if you just read the news reports or even I think NBC even maybe NBC didn't, but you know, like all the major news networks yeah. have at this point basically been like, this woman is being attacked because of her short hair. And, you know, like it's an interesting thing because you, they wear these hats in archery that yeah. are like kind of like these white bowler hats. And then, so you see this fringe of short hair totally. sticking out underneath it. Um, like what, what is actually happening to her? Yeah. So she was attacked as having shortcut, like shortcut, short hair, shortcut modi. And um, basically that is, like the way that it's being carried out by these men's rights people is both an attack on feminism, radical feminism. And it's also sort of homophobic in a sense, like there's a bit of an equating, right, yeah. right. With like queer culture and like queer feminism, which is really important in Korea to the feminist movement. And I don't think like, I think it's unfortunate again, that feminists kind of being on the defensive are kind of always trying to downplay that. But basically Ansan was attacked for this. And then, um, yeah, she was trying to kind of defend herself. She hasn't really engaged in the feminist discourse, like saying like, yeah, I'm a feminist or whatever. But what some women in popular culture have come out in support of her. She was wearing a badge that's indicative of being Mamamoo fan, which is a K-pop group. And so one of their members was speaking out for her. So it's it's been, a there have been some high profile people who have said like, Unsan, we support you. The men's rights activists, meanwhile, have been trying to position the Korean Archery Association. <laughs> Uh, to basically disavow Ansan, which is insane, wow. given that she has yeah. won three medals for the country. Um, you know, in a way, it's sort of an interesting moment in kind of like nationalism and mm -hmm. like nationalist discourse, because Korean feminism has always sort of been stuck 
and subordinated to the sort of democratization and nationalism of modern Korea. And so here, again, we see this sort of weird like take on that, where a gloss on that, where it's like, is this woman a national hero? Like in, in what kind of woman can be a national hero for Korea? You know, what, what sort of like physical or emotional or political attributes does she have to like embody? I want to clarify one thing, which is that like when you say men's rights activists, like here in the United States, we just think of like a small group of incels who are causing terror on the Internet. Right. Or incels yeah. not. I, mean, I don't really like using that term, but you know yeah. what I mean? Like it's like exactly. a term. It's basically thought of as a small French group. This isn't that right. Like when you're talking about men's rights activists, we're not talking about like a small portion of the population. Yeah. Um, it might be the people who are doing the posts. The people who sympathize with them are much like a much broader portion of that country. So like what I don't know, it's hard to do percentages here. But like I would say that from my sense of this is that this is not a fringe opinion, you know, that her short hair is a problem that her like, quote, I mean, it feels McCarthyist almost right. Like, are you a feminist? It's like the type of like we don't do that in this country really anymore. Right. Like, I don't think I ever hear the term feminist in any sort of context outside of the most corporate sense. Right. Like, uh, <laughs> at least not, I mean, I don't know, like, especially on the left now, it's not, re- it's just sort of a given in some yeah. ways and maybe it shouldn't be yeah. but, like this idea of like, are you a feminist? Or are you not a feminist? It's right. so strange to, to us. Like, so w- what yeah. is it, what is that situation like? Yeah. So, so first of all, like when, when people, we should talk about like the semantics. So when people say like feminist as like a pejorative or an acu- accusation in Korea, like it's kind of like when Limbaugh was saying feminazi back in the day. Right. So it has this thing and, 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 you know, and there's an assumption again about feminism being a certain kind of thing, a hatred of men, whatever. And, um, you know, I think in, in this case, what we're seeing is back in 2015 and 16, when some of these men's rights and incel groups were in chat rooms that are basically like 4chan type situations, it wasn't actually clear like how influential these people were, how, you know, whether this is something we could basically ignore or just deal with through like similar women's activism online, which is some, what some of these controversial women's bulletin boards basically tried to do in a process called mirroring, where they were trying to do wordplay and other sorts of play upon the men's misogynistic gestures. And when I was in 2018, I was doing a bunch of reporting on on this with Korean feminists. And a lot of the women were were starting to worry, like, we actually think that a lot of this stuff that is just online actually is like very powerfully in real life and is mm-hmm. like becoming like a political force. And um, I know a friend of the pod, like Nathan Park, has documented some of this recently in his, you know, he's been kind of worried about the growing influence of these people in conservative politics. Right. And now it's reached a point where basically we can say that young men's rights activists actually are a very sizable portion of the the um, constituency of like the PPP, which is one of the main opposition parties in Korea. Um, so it's really frightening, you know, and I think like when when Korean women say like that they are experiencing fear, they're experiencing anxiety, they feel that they are not like included or recognized as part of society, like it's not hyperbole. You know, this is really is, is something that on a daily basis is affecting a lot of people who may not even identify as feminists, yeah. you know, which, again, like, it's unfortunate. I think that that term has been demonized to the point that, like, basically feminists are disavowing feminism. Yeah. <laughs> but that's where we are right now. The, What's yeah. their problem? Andy, go ahead. Sorry. No, just to uh, supplement, you know, in the in, in Nathan's uh, reporting and other people's writing, they pointed out in a most recent election, like 70 percent of 20 something men voted for the yeah. conservative side, which is like a shocking number, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of these swings appear very recent, like a, like one or two years ago. Um, 
they weren't that dramatic. So it sounds, I mean, you know, I guess South Korea, you know, it's not the, not the biggest country. I don't know if there's like a sole election, right. right? So this stuff could happen pretty quickly. So it does seem like there is something timely about this, right? Something in the last year or two, um, you know, the stuff I was reading and, and I don't know if you could, you agree with this, it says like 2015 was kind of a turning point, I guess, 15, 16. So I guess that's one question I had is, you know, you could say like um, South Korea, Asian countries, the whole world, right? They have this like deep seated, deep seated, patriarchal, traditional gender roles and so on. Yeah. But there does seem to be something particular to the last five or six years that um, I'm just curious, like, how do you explain that? Like, why, why is there an, uh, a, a noticeable difference um, in the last, in the last half decade? Yeah. So, so if we, if we accept, like, as we've discussed on this podcast a lot, that maybe like the last 10 to 15 years have represented a sort of emotional or sorry, an, an economic kind of coming to terms for a lot of people like post 2008 or something like that, we, we might say, and, and I've heard some people say in, in my reporting that like, there's a sort of maybe a window after that, you know, in which basically the, the sort of disillusionment with the economy and with the opportunities that the society has provided, like could be sort of generalized, but at some point with women, like they have now reached a point where there are basically like equal educational outcomes, like their expectations around jobs and their achievement in society are now at a point where they, they feel that they should actually have the same, you know, as men do. And that's fairly recent, you know? And so, so perhaps like one way of seeing this is like as a kind of men's reaction to that you know, and an assertion of, well, hang on, like, we were basically always the leaders, we were the beneficiaries of the modern developmental state in Korea. And now basically, the women are saying, hey, we want a piece of that, you know, yeah. and, and then the men have this added thing where we're talking about an incredibly militarized society that's based that is actually physically an island, because yeah. it's cut off with North Korea is not a peninsula. Um, there's compulsory military service. And so there's also this incredible sort of like militaristic martial mentality that's instilled in men that also gives them a feeling of, well, why should women get what we want and, and, you know, deserve when mm-hmm. they don't even have to do compulsory military service. You right. know, they, they should occupy a particular supportive function in society that they always have. And we're not going to take anything less than that. And so you guys might've read like a few years ago with the whole like hell Joseon thing, like hell mm-hmm. Korea, like this feeling of young people who are like, I want to leave Korea. There is an opportunity here, et cetera. You know, that, that's a, that's a shared like cross gender thing, but it also has this sort of like chauvinistic male element. That's like, you know, this, this difference between like the unreasonable expectation and entitlement that they have and like what they're seeing women demand. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's also this, I mean, the gender pay gap right now is very bad there. Right. So, so like, um, it says the world economic forum had a 2015 global gender gap report and Korea was 115th out of 145 countries. Um, which you know is bad. It was the, the worst of all, <laughs> all the rich countries for Korea, right. right? Right, and so um, they said that college-educated women make about sixty-six percent of what college-educated men make on average each month, and the median wage gap between men and women in Korea is the worst amongst OECD countries. What's that OECD? Uh, the organization. Yeah, what does it stand for? It's basically rich the countries. developed rich countries. <laughs> okay, at thirty six point seven Asia, US, basically. <laughs> in two thousand and fourteen, and most women drop out of the workforce in Korea at the age of twenty five. And um, yeah, I mean, it seems like you know, 
the I mean, I don't know. Tammy and I are very familiar with Korean culture. It's very patriarchal and um, women generally. I don't know. It's like women working, at least when I was growing up, even in the diaspora, you know, if the wife works, it's seen, it's mostly seen as because a man is not making enough money. Right. And so um, like how rapid has this change been of women entering the workforce? Is this, do you see this as just sort of a reaction to that or is it something something new because i mean korean women have been working right it's not like this is you yeah, know this for is sure. they didn't start working in 2013 and then two years <laughs> later everyone's like whoa what the hell's going yeah. on right like what 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 happened yeah i mean i think this is like i think we're all trying to kind of figure this out but yeah i guess just to build on on sort of what i was saying like i i think and and i don't have the the particular numbers of job entry in front of me but i do think there's been you know a lot more secondary and and higher level like educational achievement among women and their expectations around you know having careers in the workforce not just having a sort of like casual job or doing service labor i mean of course women have always worked and supported their families like in the service economy and in the informal economy and you know one of my retorts always when men are talk about like how they should get more because they do compulsory military services like during the developmental period every single family has a story about like how women wasn't able to go to school because they were working to send their brothers to school and like all of yeah. the education you know an opportunity of the women was sacrificed in favor of the men so so, yeah, I mean, I I guess if we looked at it economically, I think it has to do with like many more women wanting to be in the workforce to have like durable careers, women not necessarily wanting to get married and have children like those rate like the birth rates have gone way, way down. So we do see like a questioning of traditional, you know, nuclear family arrangements. It There's a, number, a negative birth rate, right? Negative birth right. rate now. Yeah. I think maybe last year was the first time it dipped below the death rate. Right. Um, yeah, an emergence of, you know, LGBTQ activism. So there's a lot of stuff kind of happening at once, you know, that I think like for people who, again, have these sort of unreasonable expectations and entitlements. And then you add the internet <laughs> on top of that and how much like Korea is right. wired and like yeah. men basically in a kind of maybe a little bit. I keep thinking of like the Japanese term hikikomori with like the man, the men shut-ins. Mm. Um, you know, and this sort of unemployed youth being at home, being on the internet, getting radicalized in these like really nasty directions. Yeah. I think, think all of that is this kind of like really gross stew that we're confronting right now. Did any of it have to do with the, you know, the fact that it's from 2013, 2015, maybe 2013, I think Korea's president was a was a woman, was a woman. <laughs> it's not, yeah some of these reports said a lot of this um male activism was actually kind of part of the anti-pac um movement in the in the 1516 is that you know i i'm i'm kind of i guess i haven't always credited those theories because i mean i i'd love to to hear more about that i mean so, so the the park impeachment activism did start at like Ewa Women's University, who is, which has been like a site of a lot of like feminist activism over the years, and is very much hated by the men's rights activists. In that way, like it was, it was both a feminist movement, you know, and a democratic movement. And so, to say then that the the men's rights were sort of fueled by that, I don't know. I mean, I think it's really complicated, and there were so many people involved in it. It seems like weird to kind of reduce it to that. But I'm sure there was a ton of hatred of her. It's just that, like, everybody right. hated her. Right. <laughs> you know? I wonder... And also, like, her party is, like, the one that they're supporting. Now, right. right. And now like, it's the conservatives. Like, I think her, oh, yeah. okay. her family ties, obviously, are much more 
Yeah. Central or chauvinistically or, authoritarian. Yeah. yeah. Father was the dictator. So um, I think so, most people's opinions might have. Now, obviously, some of it would be filtered through the fact that Korea did have a female president before the United States did. And maybe it was seen as like some sort of like, you know, too much progress or something like that. But again, <laughs> it's not it's like if we it's like if we elected a. Uh, Sarah Palin or something like that. And if Sarah Palin's dad happened to be the dictator of Korea, you know, it's just like, I don't know, you know, <laughs> like, are we really, are we really mad at feminism here? You know, yeah. um, it's interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. So this is something, Tammy, this is something that, that, that Nathan did write about and, you know, um, I think wrote about pretty well, like what, what is these guys problem? You know, if you were to, if, like, outside of, you know, economic, deter- like, not the actual problem. What do they say their problem is? Like, why do they care if if this woman is, you know, shooting arrows with, with short haircut? Like, what's, what's, what's the problem here? It's, it's, it's hard for, yeah. I think it's hard for Americans to grasp, right? Like, I mean, we can say, like, stuff like, oh, well, look at Simone Biles and how she's treated. It's all true, you know? But it's not like... uh like it's not to the same intensity where it's just like, oh my God, she's a feminist. And, you know, um, and then it becomes like an international news story. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious what you guys think in terms of its application to, you know, what we call incels or MRAs in the US or in China or in other places. But Nathan's analysis in, in the piece we're talking about in foreign policy is he was trying to answer the question of why has there been such a dramatic turn, as Andy said, of these young men to the conservatives in Korea, which are right now in the opposition party. And, you know, he basically reading some of the, the social science literature says there are two reasons. One is meritocracy, the sort of, I you know, but as defined on their terms, that meritocracy is not working for them. This is sort of like their feeling, right? And then also just misogyny, which is a kind of a separate thing, but sort of tied up in that it just relates again to some of this comparative feeling of, well, women shouldn't get this when we don't have this, right? Right. Sort of thing. So, I mean, I, yeah, I, I really appreciate Nathan's thinking in those pieces. And, um, you know, I haven't read the, I think he cites a few um, social science books in Korean that I haven't read. So I, I can't say what those are. I mean, my, my frustration with doing some of the demographic analysis or like taking the the men's rights people's like sentiments very seriously is that it, I get very frustrated about, yeah, on the one hand, like they are part of our humanity. We have to address the concerns of these people who are like controlling politics now, right? In some ways. And like, we need to figure out if they can be organized, how they can be organized so that we don't have such a destructive political discourse at the same time. Like, I don't really want to credit these arguments in the sense that they're not based in reality, you know, like, right, right. It's like, what do we do with Q? Like I really, yeah. Like I, I just really struggle with that. And I think like in the analysis of like, in the analyses that are sensitive to MRAs and incels in the U S as well, like, yes, we want to understand what they say about themselves, Mm -hmm. but we also like can't accept things that just aren't true that they say. So yeah, I'm curious what you guys think about like what he wrote there and whether you think that analysis is similar across different countries. Andy? I I think, I mean, you could, so this, I guess true is like the, uh, the hot word here. Like I, I agree. Like you could say like in their own terms, the way they're framing it is, um, is false it's biased or whatever but it does it does seem to me like according to just like stuff you know i, I was reading about it and even like by a lot of the feminist authors themselves they acknowledge there are these broader demographic issues that might be 
manifest in some of this some of these sentiments and so this is you know i actually kind of think reproduction um and economics maybe not you know, i don't know if there's a direct translation into these issues but i think that by mm-hmm. that is kind of this baseline thing that is you know you mentioned in the comparative context i know in japan there's also a lot of talk about low birth rates there's this term that became yeah. popular a few years ago called i guess herbivore men grass eating men which was a description not of not not blaming women, but talking about how men are like not actively seeking relationships, not actively getting married and having children either. Mm-hmm. And I think economic pressures across East Asia in a lot of these formerly booming economies is real. I think the culture of overwork and low pay is kind of strangling their ability to have children. Um, and and it does seem like, you know, this is reporting um, from Isabella Steger at Quartz, where I think wrote a really interesting article uh, outlining some of this stuff that, um, you know, with a low birth rate and the way that work is structured in South Korea, she was suggesting, I don't know if you would agree, that they're, unlike in the United States, where, which is kind of weird because the United States is not actually seen as a very good example of this, right? But, but it does seem like there isn't really the opportunity to both have a family and have a career. Um, traditionally for women in South Korea. So it does seem like mm-hmm. this is like a, f- but that's like a false force choice because in other societies yeah. they have figured out a way totally. for women to have careers and families. Um, and so I think there's anxiety, it does seem like there's a lot of anxiety over um, the low birth rate. And I guess this perception that like it's the duty of Korean women to reproduce the Korean line. And there's anxiety about, I mean, I also wonder if this is related to like anxieties over about migration, like would they not accept um, immigrants to come into the country to to deal with like the low birth rate and like the low workforce in, in South Korea like that might also be kind of at the margins of this conversation um, yeah I don't know it just seems like and so I agree like you could say like this gets manifested in false um, untrue accusations of women being selfish and taking away opportunities for men and so on and so forth um, but it again it does seem like my original question like well why now why why mm-hmm. why why not just tradition why is it not just a story of traditional patriarchy it does seem to me like there might be some of these broader trends that are lurking in the background and are you know probably um um being misperceived or misrecognized right by these low men, social mobility sense. yeah right yeah i mean so those are just some thoughts right no 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 that's great yeah i mean i think it's like and just from reading nathan's article it seems like it's like a question of he talks about how there's this contradiction between the this generation's love of meritocracy which they sort of figure out through a bunch of exams and standardized tests right and their belief that everybody that the entire country is running on a meritocracy and then the reality that there's not much social mobility and then that's mixed with this like sort of weird metastasized misogyny that they is somewhat inherited from the older generation which was very patriarchal, but now is basically just saying like the, the uh, meritocracy isn't working for me because of feminism. Right. right? And that's like a scarcity thing. Cause it's like, well, if more women are working, there's less jobs for me. And then I do think Andy, as you were saying that some of it is about reproduction and sexual sex, you know, like sexual availability or whatever, right? Like where there are all these stories and it's all very commonplace in Korea that some men can't find wives in Korea. And so they go to the Philippines or Thailand or something like that. Right. And that they find a wife there or something like that. There's a story in the times about eight years ago about this, but, um, but it's not, that's not really as common as these guys seem to 
say it is and it's also but it also is this idea of scarcity right the whole problem with this seems to be or their issue seems to just be that like there's not enough for us and we're working so hard and you Mm -hmm. know our lives aren't turning out the way that they should in a country like korea where you can't really blame you know the the uh immigrants who run across a border you know i think women become the target um i don't know yeah i mean well so with regards to to marriage and sexual reproduction sexual engagement so like the population that has married foreign women because of this perceived scarcity of women or that they're not being desirable is is generally like rural men who are in agricultural communities who may not have the highest levels of education and who are fairly low income and they have imported a lot of Southeast Asian women into Mm. the society. The Korean approach to that because it is a very um, ethnocentric and racist society in a lot of ways has been to essentially convert those women into Korean women and erase their pasts and their cultures, right? right? So that's one dynamic. The refugee admittance rate and then my permanent migrant worker admittance rate is like basically nil. So there's guest worker programs, but they're extremely abusive and they are temporary. So even though it is a multicultural society in reality, like it doesn't want to acknowledge that it will be, and there's really no gesture to open towards that. I think the thing, the problem with, you know, the, there, this anxiety around reproduction is like the men who are engaging in the men's rights activism are not necessarily the men who are in that, you know, sort of like foreign, Right, economy right. or, you know, the, the sort of their demographic categories don't line up. I think also what's the the factual problem that I'm having in, in this discourse is like women aren't doing well in jobs. Right. Like they aren't getting job investment. They aren't getting jobs like men are still very preferred. And so the perceived scarcity issue like scarcity is real, but that's because they we live in a horrible, like hyper-capitalistic economy right. where like the social mobility, like Korea is scrunched, like more than a fifth of the population is scrunched in this whole area. Right. Like, you know, everyone has like a PhD from Cornell and like no one can get a job, you know, and that really has nothing to do with gender. It has to do yeah. with like the incentives of a society where we've basically just like made real estate the number one way to make any kind of money and everybody else has to have like inherited wealth through Tibor, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so that, but, but yeah, the displacement on that, yeah, maybe what you guys were saying is correct that, you know, this is just a classic case of like societal scapegoating and the women are there. Yeah. I don't know, you know, but it's, but I, but I think again, the terms are wrong. Like it's sort of like, you know, in the United States was also Frederick of how like illegal immigrants from Latin America are parasites and don't pay taxes and, and are doing well, but then like reality is the opposite, you know, like no one actually facts checks totally. the racist comments. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a mismatch here between like there's an economic system and those is just like very like based like physical natural system which is in the economic system there isn't that much room for growth in a lot of these places mm-hmm. and and contrast that with a sort of natural system of like birth rate it's like there is a lot of room for growth there is a lot of room yeah. for people to have kids and take up land etc cetera, etc cetera. but those things don't match up and mm-hmm. I wonder if there's like a, there's like a misperception where um, they think like, like if I were one of these mentors activists, I would say like, look, there's all these available men. There's all these um, available men who need wives and, you know, this country is shrinking. And so like, why don't women want to marry us and start and have children, et cetera. But that's a mismatch with the economic reality, which is there isn't actually all this room for all these new people to enter the workforce or people to give up their careers to, to, to start families because everyone is basically just trying to squeeze out what, what they can right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. That, that kind of mismatch between the, sort of the natural and the economic 
uh, might be kind of um, driving some of the misperceptions here. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but. Yeah. And, you know, it's, and I'm wondering like what, you know, I think also in, in some of these analyses, like there isn't enough attention to like, well, what are women going through and like, right. what, you know, what, how are they processing their own economic reality and their own social reality and anxiety and, um, you know, and I think like in those 2015, 2016 moments, there were a lot more women talking about that and questioning like just very basic things like why do they have to do all the housework? Like why is the language so sexualized and like sexist, all this stuff. And like their audacity to do that, like what just like basically provoked all this rage in these MRA communities. I don't know how to reach these people. Like it's very frustrating. Where do Korean feminists take their, uh, you know, cues from? since there's no history within the, I mean, there is, you know, but the history in the country is short. Like where, what did, where, where do they, so I think there's like some of it, there's like some indigenous excavation of like, for instance, like the courtesan poets and, you know, some of the feminists from the 1930s. Like, so during the colonial era, there was feminism. Um, Some of it is looking at histories from like the sixties to the eighties of the, the women who were leading in the democratization movement, the factory workers strikes, all of the, the sort of, um, the women who who were um, in the unions at the time. Um, and then like more recently, like they they do use the word feminism like in English, right? So pimi, feminism, like they are using that more like more than like Yosongjui, which is like translated version. And in that they are reading who we read here. Yeah. So, you know, like the last time I was there, like Solnit, Roxanne Gay were super popular. <laughs> wow. But also older feminist texts, you know, interest in like de Beauvoir, like Sontag, like very wide ranging interest in like Western yeah. feminist traditions and like feeling that a lot of the second wave work is still very applicable. So is there like a xenophobic sense also that a feminist is reading, is bringing Western, quote unquote, Western ideas into, <laughs> right? Because if it's, well, if it's, I, about that. I, no. I don't see that as much. I mean, I think like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, tough. I'm sure and some of the older like, generations. Well, what other ideas way? are from the West? And they're like, well, most of them. You know? <laughs> like um, all of the ones that are <laughs> circulating. Uh, the last thing I want to say, and this is from Nathan's article, and I found it really interesting. And he said that, you know, like this is about the political power that these people have. So the PPP, which is the People Power Party, which is a great name, you know, too bad they have terrible <laughs> politics, which is their. Um, they just elected a 36-year-old pundit named Lee Jun Sok, I think, yeah. right? As it's a part, or Lee Jun Sok, I'm sorry for the Korean people who are constantly <laughs> listening to see if I can actually speak Korean. Um, I can, but, you know, not as well as Tammy. But, like, uh, <laughs> they, uh, he is a guy who, based, like, this position is pretty powerful, and it's somebody generally who has a lot of political experience. This guy is basically just, like, a 36-year-old dude who just yells on, TV and on the internet, and he was given this prestigious position, and uh, he's never won an election. He's lost three, zero for three, but um, he's basically like their champion, right? Like for these for these dudes. And um, one thing he said was that analy- and this is from Nathan's article, analyzing his party's victory in the sole mayoral by election, Leap uh, Pen Op-Ed saying that. The Democrats lost because they, quote, went all in on feminism while underestimating the <laughs> voting power of men in their 20s and 30s. And he he also railed against, quote, radical feminists and government initiatives that appoint more women in the cabinet and give them bonus points in the hiring market, which is basically just like, you know, it's like he's like like a red-pilled Matty Gla- or more red-pilled Matty Glaciers <laughs> or something like that, what he sounds like right now, you know, basically just 
being like, well, you lost because you you did too much defund the police or something like that. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how similar the, the cultural war, you know, language is everywhere. Yeah, actually. Yeah, um, I mean, I think the anointing of Yuchunzok is is definitely a sign that the conservatives are being like cynically very savvy and like recognizing where their base is and running with that. And that's probably very smart from their point of view. It's funny because I think like from fem- from a feminist point of view, Moon's party has been incredibly disappointing and not at all represented the interests of women or attended to their needs. And so, you know, I'm not really sure, like the whole thing is basically fabricated, obviously. Um, The PVP very interestingly, and, you know, obviously um, once has proposed to abolish the gender of women, the ministry of women and gender. So Hmm. they are very much on, this is their thing. Like they've picked it up. They know this is going to work with a certain cadre of their supporters you know, and whether or not it has, has any correlation to what's actually happening does not matter. They're going to start like a CRT type of thing over there, I bet, you know, it's yeah. like they're going to base it around like Judith Butler or something like that. And they're like, <laughs> no, Judith, Judith Butler in Korean Judith schools. Butler is being taught at all the hot ones. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, that'd be uh, so funny. Second wave feminism has infected our children. I wish. I mean, like, that's basically what it's gonna be. Yeah. Oh, good lord. Tammy, when you were doing your reporting, did you talk to a lot or any of these um, and kind of like try to reason with them and see, like, what was their response to? Like, like, do you feel like they're all deep set or deep set in these beliefs, or do you feel like, you know, because this swing has been kind of relatively recent, like maybe it could swing in a different direction? In the yeah. next few years, or is this sort of like a generation that's been lost? God, I hope, no, I didn't go deep with MRA people at all. I mean, the closest I got to it was basically having interviews with like fairly reasonable men who were skeptical about feminism. And yeah. these are like young college age men who have otherwise progressive views, who hmm. were influenced by the impeachment movement, but who felt that like feminism had quote unquote gone too far, hmm. had defeminized their, you know, their comrades and school. They had felt neglected from like women only spaces. So again, I, to me, that was all just reading as like ridiculous forms of entitlement, but you know, they were, that they were yeah. being honest about like how they felt. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. That's depressing. Last question, <laughs> Andy, I want you to answer this too. Like, do you think that the sense of, uh, like the other thing about Koreans other than that they practice a lot is that like they are very, 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 very scared of international shame, right? Mm. Like the, the, yeah. everyone else thinks they're backwards, et cetera. This is a big story, you know? Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of shaming going on around, you know, and a lot of like, what is this country? And, you know, mm-hmm. we've said it on this podcast 5,000 <laughs> times. This is why Tammy and I are not Korean nationalists, you know, like we, we don't say Korea is the best, you know, look at the BTS and, 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 uh, and what's the other thing that Korea, oh, Parasite, you know, like, cause it's like, well, I don't know, like country's kind of like, it's, it's not great when it comes to a lot of things that you probably care about that you assume that they also do, like they don't do that thing, you know? Um, what, what do you think it's going to be? Because it's a huge story. Um, in, in a lot of ways, Korea cares very much about the Olympics and international competition, right? And so, like, this is a black eye on that for sure. You know, like, it is it is sort of taken away from the glory that they want to claim on this sort of stuff. Do you think it'll have any sort of change? Or do you think people are talking mm-hmm. about it in that sort of th- context? Andy, what do you think? Do you, how, how big of a story does this seem to you guys? It seems like a big story. Yeah, yeah. it sounds like um, 
You know, the perception I have of it is that this has been going on for a while and people who study or are in South Korea know about it, but then the Olympics has kind of exposed the rest of the world to this ongoing thing. It's interesting because I think I can think of conservative elements in Japan and China where international criticism makes conservatives dig their heels in deeper and say, and, and it kind of fuels right-wing responses. So I'm wondering is, does that, do you feel like that dynamic is there among conservatives in South Korea? Or do you feel like, as Jay said, like they are so that they might actually be more I don't know, flexible or bendable mm-hmm. um, in their in mm-hmm. response um, because I don't know, maybe they feel more exposed and more dependent upon international, the international, the market, or I don't know, the international reputation. Yeah. I don't see them being very shamed. And I, and I don't see necessarily like the, the digging in of the digging in being bound so much on like the international shame. I mean, it's, it's hard in Korea because like as a essentially client state of the U S like all of the parties are very cozy with the U S and like want to be appreciated and stuff like that. But it doesn't like the, no party will have more or less credibility by saying that, you know, they need to get like the U S to feel one way or the other about them, you know? So I don't know if that will work here. I mean, I feel like, I think like they, they, they can't, really be shamed like domestically or internationally is my feeling for the hardest core set of these. People. Oh, you mean the, the young men, but what about like, you know, I don't know. Like what about your typical, I don't like New York times, whatever Korea's version of the, New York times, <laughs> the Korean lives. Yeah. The, which I always thought of as a lawyer on an airplane. who's like, maybe I'll read the 6,000 word yeah. magazine story. I mean, know? I think they'll be embarrassed, but they won't stand up for feminism. You know, I think they'll say like, Unsign is just a really great like athlete, and like she's not part of like the misandrist radical femmes. Okay, so right. they'll disavow. They'll have her. They'll disconnect her from it. How how has she re- responded to all this? I mean, has she come out and you know, like I, it's just so striking of a contrast, right? Because you have this shop putter, U.S. shop putter, uh, Raven Saunders, who's a black queer woman. Yeah. She wins the silver medal and she puts up an X and she says, this is the intersection where <clears throat> all oppressed people meet, which I thought was awesome. You know, mm-hmm. like, uh, um, it was like so much better than kneeling. <laughs> I mean, it was just awesome. Yeah. And then you have, uh, <laughs> like, I was like, I was like so fired up seeing that. I was just like, that was fucking great. You know, maybe the Olympics are just good for this reason and because it shames Korean, uh, you know, <laughs> Korean misogynists. But, uh, you know, and then you have that. So, like, how is what, what, like, the part of the story that's missing is like what Ansan, how she's responded to all of this. Yeah. I mean, I mean she's it, like on Instagram, like when this first came up, like before the most current scandal, I think like her first response to the short haircut thing was like it's more comfortable for me to do sports this way (laughs) and like her parents have just have spoken out and said like we're really proud of our daughter she's very hardworking and stuff like that so again I think like there hasn't been like an embrace of like well yeah I am a feminist and you know but it's it's more just like the kind of professionalized response Uh, right and we should say none of that's on her I mean what no I mean I don't expect her to someone who shoots art and I don't know what her political views are arrows at yeah Yeah. she's 20 years old yeah who knows yeah 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 Yeah. like one should not expect her to do anything more than that you should just expect her to like you know yeah it does feel like a very American thing if 
if an athlete wins like three gold medals, then suddenly her identity group can overcome all social <laughs> obstacles. I don't know if that's if you feel like that would be the case in, in South Korea too, but that's like how it would happen in the United States. It's like, well, this group is marginalized and oppressed, but when then when one of their athletes wins like, you know, the national championship or something, the World Series, then suddenly that's this huge symbolic victory. You know? <laughs> probably not the World Series. That's probably, well, that's I don't know. For, I, I think that this, like, I I don't think representation matters very much, but I do think that these things are definitely important in the lives of young people watching them, right? And um, yeah. I don't know. Like, are the spelling bee champions, Saila, <sighs> right. like, you know? Like, it matters, you know? Like, she's, I don't know. I think it matters. And you can be inspired by that without assigning too much political uh wait to it or saying like well now that's over you know racism solved uh but yeah i don't know the three the three number i think does kind of matter and that's a lot yeah. you know I and mean, she went one of them after this all happened so right. under that pressure with her 40 per- that simone biles yeah 40 <laughs> per minute heartbeat or whatever like she was able to still win another one also, it's incredible. Saw her competitor was um in one of these was like a woman from russia who was probably a couple of decades older. So she could probably do this for like an archery. I guess there's no reason you can't Amazing. do this to your forties. Right. So she might no, be no, no. Is it like video games where your reflexes go down <laughs> at the age of 20. I don't think there's any reflexes. The target's right what... there. <laughs> your arm, your shoulder gives out at some point. I don't it's like know. It's right there. Just shoot at it. Oh, Wait, you're God. just like Gina Davis started in her thirties. So <laughs> I know, I know that's, that's blowing my mind. I have no desire to ever be an Olympic athlete, but if Gina Davis did it at 30, then I mean, I'm not 30. So <laughs> there's like literally no sport that I could pick up right now and do. Okay. Disc golf, yeah. No disc golf. I started in my 20. Actually, I started probably when I was like 19 in college. Cause we had a course near my, there's so little to do in Maine that we would go play disc golf a lot. And, uh, I'm not bad. I'm okay. Anyway, full circle. Second topic. (laughs) We should talk about the eviction moratorium now. um, You know, it passed. Rent was due yesterday. The national eviction moratorium was put up by the CDC, ended, despite uh, a lot of work from members of, I don't know, I guess we should call them the squad, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. Corey Bush, Ayanna Presley. Rashida Tlaib, uh, and, um, I believe, uh, um, Ilhan Omar sort of stayed outside of the steps of the Capitol because like to try and get Congress to reconvene, cause they had basically just gone on vacation without passing this. Um, you know, it's a type of work that I think is great, you know, and certainly brought way more attention to this. than I think it should have been Nancy Pelosi's response was kind of like, yeah, uh, <laughs> Um, I'm just here, you know, this is, she basically was just like, she really did basically just say, I know that Felix Biederman from Chapa, who I guess we're now supposed to be like the, I don't know, did you, we were mentioned in the New, New Yorker, Yorker an article that, yeah. by Andrew Moran. So it was basically just like, kind of like a sideswipe at Chapa and talking about, no, anyway, whatever. I, I, I want to say. You mentioned in a tweet that, that led to us being in a New York article. Right. I have no problem strange. with Chapa Trap House or Felix or any of the people there. And I feel like, you know, some of the, the some of the some of the categorizing that's happening is not fair to them mm. you know but i'll just say that but um 
I think he was like, I think he tweeted like Nancy Pelosi's one of her tweets quote. He was like, I'm just hearing that kind of was what she just said. She just said her quote is like, we only learned about yeah. of this yesterday. <laughs> Speaker Nancy Pelosi so, told reporters Friday evening oh after God. the House tried and failed to pass legislation that would extend the federal eviction moratorium. There was not enough time to socialize it within our caucus as well as to bring to build a consensus consensus necessary, she said, with a promise from her top lieutenant to revisit the issue ASAP, probably after the break. It's like, <laughs> rent's real. due, Nancy. You know, like, yeah. what are you going to do? You know, like, what, revisit what? Like, the deadline passed. First of all, I find that to be a stunning yeah. statement. Yeah, Everyone crazy. knew that the eviction moratorium was ending, right? Like, not just, like, sort of housing wonks and, and people on the left. Like, especially if your job is to be in Congress and the yeah. Speaker of the House, you should know this. Um, but, um, but this is also yeah, more I about don't know. Biden. The Biden administration, I guess, they didn't formally ask Congress to do anything about it because they were themselves exploring options. But it sounds like this was also all performative. Like, they weren't actually right. doing that and, yeah. and so on. So the... Biden administration's official position was that states and local governments who have received quite a bit of money of federal aid, right, up upwards of $46 billion, should start dispensing that money out and helping renters, right? Like, so they're sort of brushing their hands of the problem. Now, the things that can happen are that, like, Biden could go to the CDC and say, hey, extend the moratorium because we have the Delta variant, right? Like, we can't have mm -hmm. people out of their houses because we've got this Delta variant. We can't have people moving because we have this Delta variant going around, but none of that happened. And it, I don't know, to me, it's interesting because it showed that, you know, Biden's big, big thinking doesn't really extend to housing. Um, mm. What do you think about that? Uh, also, I think the CDC, I think that was the whole issue with the Supreme Court ruling one or two months ago. The CDC couldn't unilaterally extend it. It had to be done by Congress. Also, why is the CDC in charge of moratorium? Health eviction moratorium? <laughs> well, because they had said it was a public matter. health issue. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, it was kind of cool. I mean, that was the first yeah. good thing the CDC sort of did during that period. <laughs> yeah, outside of leaking slides. Like, what's that about? Oh, my God. I feel um, like that $46 billion, you know, the reporting says like $3 billion has been dispersed of the 46. That's what AOC said. Yeah. 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 And so there was some other tweet from Georgia that said 6% of what was given to Georgia has been used. That's, Texas. That's stunning. I think, yeah. I think Texas has used the most of it. They've used something like half of their money, oh, okay. which hmm. is, you know, that's fascinating. Interesting. <laughs> that yeah. Greg Abbott is the is the governor. So I don't think this really breaks down to a red state, blue yeah. state type of thing. You know, it's like some states have used that money and some states are totally in the pocket of the real estate interest, which actually tend to be the big liberal cities. Right. Like uh, every big liberal yeah. city, New York yeah. City, right. Boston, San Francisco. Los, just name one yeah. and you know real estate sort of runs that town so yeah. um i don't know um, yeah aoc went on um one of those sunday shows and kind of um i don't think she named names but she talked about conservative democrats um were intentionally avoiding confronting this issue and there was reporting that landlord lobbies you know were, yeah. were making inroads mm -hmm. maybe through those conservative democrats in particular so yeah uh this isn't I don't know. I guess it's kind of like, I think we all knew that Biden was not, you know, big picture FDR and everything that it was going to be a mixed bag on a lot of this stuff. Um, and this is just sort of uh, not expected, but it's sort of like not that surprising either that he has these sort of blind spots or, you know, that he might be like uh, feeling the pressure from a particular lobby and a particular interest group, in this case, landlords and real estate. Um, to kind of 
you know, overlook this. Yeah. I mean, it also, it just, I, I forget where I was reading this. I think it was in the London Review of Books, but um, someone was describing real estate in big cities like London, New York, you know, LA, et cetera, as, as a sort of resource curse. And I thought that was really fascinating and helpful because I do feel like all of like, the like, politicians- Like the oil curse in the Middle East? Exactly. Yeah. The oil curse or like the oil curse in like Nigeria, like we talk about this sort of resource- problem when there's a richness and and then the political interests are necessarily captured by those industrial interests you know and i think like that is true that is housing everywhere that is you know that real estate because housing has become a commodity instead of a human right or something that people use you know that nobody it takes a real a politician like who actually has a real connection to community and isn't really afraid of losing office to do anything radical in this regard, you know? And I think, yeah. So, so the whole Biden thing being basically like not, not feeling like he has to be accountable with regards to housing, like I think is, is, is not surprising, but it's, it's really devastating in this moment. Yeah. yeah it's depressing to see uh, states, local governments and the federal government just sort of kick this around and say, it's your problem because housing exactly. more than anything actually requires all three to cooperate, Seriously. you know, and yeah. like the fact that none of them are really seem willing to deal with this issue is, you know, I don't know. It, it's actually quite distressing. And, you know, in California, it does seem like, um, you know, I, I just want to get into a little bit of like what actually is going to happen, which is that in California, I believe that, uh, you know, it's not like that people are going to be kicked out of their houses today or tomorrow. Right. It means what it is, is basically that uh, until October, landlords can now claim rent, you know, and say that you have to pay rent. Um, I think it's like I don't think it's a full rent. I think it's uh, maybe like a quarter of the rent or half of the rent. Right. And that um, but that afterwards that the landlords, if the rent is not paid, can start taking people to claims court or um, and they can start piling on debt on these people, which is, you know, these are not people who generally have the ability to take on any sort yeah. of debt. And so um, I don't know. It really does seem like uh, like what we have is maybe not, you know, it's something like three to seven million people, depending on who you talk to, right, who are at who are at risk of, or households that are at risk of eviction. It doesn't mean that's, that if seven million people aren't forced out into tents tomorrow that this isn't going to have an effect. This mm -hmm. is going to be a long slow grind that's going to have many many people lose their homes you know and either have to move somewhere else or be out on the street and mm -hmm. here in california i mean that's like a catastrophe and i cannot for the life of me understand why that's not front of mind except for that the governor is facing a recall election and probably doesn't want to talk about unpleasant things you know he just <laughs> wants to be like we beat covid you know which obviously he can't say right now either yeah. um and so uh yeah and like you know homelessness and and housing insecurity tends to be the one issue that like everyone agrees is the biggest problem here mm -hmm. and nobody else actually wants to talk about because nobody has any actual solutions but they do throw money at this problem you know but yeah. like Dude, california is happening with this other thing the money is spent in all sorts of weird ways yeah. like i'm really interested right now in like trying to track some of this stuff and where this stuff goes i swear some large percentage of it just goes to like consultants you know mm -hmm. who come up with like sure. with like ridiculous ideas yeah. so interested in this like tiny tiny houses idea that tammy and i have talked about where they're just like 
listen, instead of like building housing, why don't we build tiny housing in parking lots that nobody uses it like underneath underpasses and they can live there, you know, and the and amount of money, like a quarter of a million per pop, perhaps $2,600 <laughs> a month, I heard per wow. little house, you know, where you're just like, that's like rent in New York City, you know, <laughs> like, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, how are you spending this money this well, way? Well, it has to do with also the the pod episode you did with Daryl. Right, right. You know, where you talk about like the bureaucratic cost of actually moving any kind of housing forward. Mm-hmm. I was thinking a lot about bureaucracy looking at the AOC numbers too. It's just like none of our systems are actually equipped to have a robust welfare state. And yeah. so when you infuse them with cash very quickly, they also all kind of collapse. Like ProPublica did an investigation a week ago about how much unemployment fraud there's been. And I hate these sorts of like fraud analyses, obviously. But, you know, I think there's also truth to it. And it's because like we weren't set up to process any of this, like in an efficient way for people who really need it. And it's just it's horrifying, you know, because, yeah. So is that 40 billion dollars? Is this still out there? Like it could still be used or is it didn't expire? Unclear. Yeah. And now it might be used in rent, rent or relief. Yeah. You know, that's a big, that hope should that be like, able, that would cover a lot of the numbers seriously. that they have. Of, yeah. Uh, right. Of right. People so if they just start up. cutting checks and say, right. stay in your that's house and thing. pay some rent, yeah. then they could solve this thing, you know, but yeah. instead we're building little, um, little, little pods and like doing all this like crazy, <laughs> crazy stuff. So that like some professor at like whatever, UC Davis or Stanford or something <laughs> like that, who's been studying this for, for, I'm sorry to be anti-academic again, but you know, I imagine. That Just name all the schools, say. Jay. <laughs> oh my God. The two, okay. So then the, there are a couple, there are a couple of notes of positivity that I want to end this conversation with. The first is that two states are looking to um, extend their own moratoriums. Those are Georgia and Texas once again. Not who you would expect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think there might be more. That's those are some of right. the names I saw that just came up um, in the search. But uh, and then well. um, the second thing is I don't know how do we feel about this. Like uh, I think it is good that um, we now have a reliable group of people in Congress who are all very famous and much more famous than almost any other Congress <laughs> member. You know, doing things like camping out on the steps of the Capitol. You know, it, it actually, look, I don't know how much political power they have. I imagine that in the end, they won't get what they want. But it is, I think, a good sign to have something so public, you know, and to have Cory Bush and Ayanna Presley and, and Rashida Tlaib, you know, AOC, all these people out there fighting for this and really putting it front of mind for the public who is like right now, either scared of the Delta variant or trying to go back to their normal lives or going to Lollapalooza Mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, (laughs) It's it's, all right. Thank you for listening to our show. What? I'm ending the show. I didn't know. I I thought what you were going to talk about was this is, you know, the squad versus the centrist is still alive. Oh yeah. Okay. Let's talk about that before I end the show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I just think, I think it's good that it's not just tenants' rights organizations and DS people with, you know, uh, roses next to their Twitter handles making these arguments. That's what I'll say. Right? What do you think? I mean, like, I, I, and I, I'm glad that they've stuck to this, this stuff, you know? Like, the people who are afraid that, like, you know, the all 90% of people on Twitter, you know, always, like, making sure that AOC, you know, stays on the left and, I, I, you know, or that... Cory Bush is not a sellout to Jim Clyburn and stuff like that. And just like, here you go. You know? Yeah. 
like what more like they're basically just arguing that that they're arguing for tenants of people who are in great amount of precarity right now and they're doing everything that they can and the fact that the leader of the democratic party in the congress has said uh yeah uh you know i just heard about this right now mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> it's not their problem yeah, wow. um, it's so shocking it's not great yeah um, I mean, shocking. I don't know. It is that statement. I thought was shocking, actually. Which like I just found out about this. No one told me. I mean, me. I think she was trying to pass the buck to Biden, but yeah, it came off as really like uninformed for the leader of right. Uh, so also, callous. She, of the party. she she also yeah. like represents a district that right where this is like it's suffering. The like, only issue suffering. in these areas is housing. You know, and you're just like, all right, you know, I don't know. Yeah, okay, although I think in a lot of that area and other areas when they we say there's a housing crisis or a homelessness crisis we're all talking about very different things right because like a lot of people are just talking about how they never want to see people on the right. street okay but it, that's because there are people in the street that's all i'm saying yes it's like there exactly. are people in the no yeah, yeah, yeah. i know no <laughs> yeah, totally yeah, yeah. but i think she is just like she's responding to a certain oh set of my god yeah <sighs> I'm glad. I, it made me happy. I don't know. Yeah, I like Cory Bush a lot. Believing in politics, it's it's it is nice to believe in people sometimes. I, I like Cory Bush. I like I you know I, the, all these people. I think they're and they're all do, men. They all have different. Um, they all have different. I don't think that they're all like one unit. I think they all have different right. ways to come about this thing. But the fact that they could rally together for this one very important thing was actually heartening for me to watch. Even though you know they're gonna lose, but. That's that's always the case. <laughs> tenant, I mean, don't you guys feel like tenant organizing and housing rights organizing is like way more visible than when we were younger? Like I feel like in the past ten to fifteen years, it's oh, just for sure. You know, it's the things people are doing in different cities, including like where Andy is, you yeah. know, where Jay is. Like it's amazing. And I think we really yeah. need to applaud those people for for blasting these politicians into their right behavior. <laughs> I also think it's because like people are so, you know, so many young people are actually housing insecure, yeah. even if they yeah. make a decent salary Absolutely. or anything like yeah. that. And totally. prices have gone yeah. crazy and urbanization. Has even gone rich up, so. people feel housing people. insecure here. Yeah. I have this rich friend who's like, you know, he's been trying to move to Berkeley. He can't, you know, he grew up here. It's just like, it's impossible. Now, um, of course he could right. actually do it. But not on the terms that he thinks are reasonable for somebody who makes as much money as he does, you know, and like, like, that's not somebody that you have to sympathize with. But certainly that is somebody who then starts thinking about housing in general. Yeah. Right. And that's the pathway. So. Yeah. yeah. No, he does. He's, he's a good dude. That's good. Um, all right. So uh, now I will end the show. Thank you for Andy. <laughs> don't don't. We're actually we're at a minute 14 right now. So we're this is a good, efficient show. Thank you for listening to our show. Um, well, my God, I'm going to spend a minute forgetting what we're I'm supposed to say. Uh, oh, yeah. You can support us at sub goodbye.substack.com. It's five dollars a month. You get access to our discord and our bonus episodes. Generally, I will say, I'm sure that some of you have noticed this, that we are not really blocking off the uh, or paywalling the bonus episodes. That's mostly because we want people to listen to the show and we apologize. If you want to if you want to take out your your contribution, then we will not take it personally. But we do that because, you know, we sort of see the, the contribution as a contribution 
to the show itself as opposed to like uh, premium content. The premium content you do get, though, is access to our Discord server, which is wonderful and still firing off. Every time I check, there's like four interesting conversations going on. I don't understand um, why, but it's great, right? We had like five you- days of kanji discourse last week. Oh, yeah. There was literally five days of kanji discourse. That I, and there, to Andy, I learned. Bad taste. <laughs> I, I successfully yeah, I defended like... myself against everyone, so it was great. <laughs> <laughs> there, okay, so in Andy's defense, there were like the people were posting photos of different types of kanji that I had no idea existed, and all of them were just watery rice. <laughs> now, in my defense, I had, so kanji, I had kanji yesterday, and it was great. Um, it was actually meat cool. broth or. No, I don't do meat broth. I just do watery rice. <laughs> it's good. I don't know. Watery rice is good. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. What else? Oh, and yeah. we have an in real life, another in real life event coming up soon too. And those, so those are through the Discord. Where is that? In LA. In LA again? Okay. Well, yeah. We meet up with each other. I will say that the people that I've met through this podcast have all been great and of interest they're all people that i wish i knew when i was in college or you know younger um and uh you know friendships for life so uh if you want to get in touch with us you can get in touch with us on twitter at ttsg pod or you can email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com until next week good talking to you too uh we will see you Bye. bye